A friend of mine from childhood is a hardworking single mom with two kids and two jobs and a mostly uncooperative ex-husband. Uh, we keep in touch mostly through Facebook where she posts regularly about her struggles and her challenges. She is at the same time stressed out and self-assured, independent and longing for help. She says that on especially hard days, she deals with the stress by getting up in the morning, going to the mirror, looking herself in the eye, and saying to herself, you've got this. On those days, she usually posts about it. It's her Facebook status, her Twitter account. It's uh, the caption under her selfies, you've got this. It's her signature hashtag. Mostly, I think, it's a message that she sends to herself. It's a pretty good mantra, right? It sounds confidence-boosting, even cocky. I'm proud of her for facing her challenges that make my life look easy, for rising to the occasion, for pulling herself up by her bootstraps again and again. But the problem with the motto, you've got this, is that sometimes it's pretty clear she doesn't. There are days when the mantra doesn't work. You've got this, maybe the motto she starts the day with, but it's clearly not what she's saying at the end of the day when the kids have a fever, the child support is late, and the boss wants her to pull extra hours over the weekend. What will she do when that self-reliant posturing runs out before all the needs are met? A lot of life is about figuring out who we are when we are not enough. But we like to prepare for the best days in life, the days that we describe on our seminary applications and our resumes, where our gifts and our resources and our skills and our carefully crafted personal qualities shine right through. But what about the other days? What about the days when we run out? Who are we then? Who will you be on the days when clearly you don't got this? That's when I think we need a strong theology of the gift of desperation. Desperation as gift means this. When we run out is when we are most likely to run to Jesus. The gospel story of Jesus' first miracle at the wedding of Cana shows us what can happen when we embrace the gift of desperation. Jesus and the newly recruited disciples show up at a wedding along with Jesus' mother. This was a multi-day party, a week-long wedding feast. And that means that it was disastrous when the wine ran out in the middle of the celebration. No one else acknowledged the problem. Nobody was talking about it until Mary. Until Mary acknowledged it. Jesus, she said, Jesus, they have no wine. Don't you love how a mother can make a seemingly innocuous statement that's really not? They have no wine. And Jesus responds, woman, woman, what concern is that of yours or mine? My hour has not yet come. And, and if we look at this story through our own cultural lens, Jesus is getting a little sassy here. 
And it seems that maybe the first miracle is actually that Mary doesn't take Jesus out right then and there. <laughs> Seriously? Woman? I had a friend um, back when I was a student in seminary who decided that it was okay because of Jesus' model here to address the females in his life as woman. <laughs> woman, he would say, woman, can I borrow your notes from ethics class? He just decided if it was good enough for Jesus, it was good enough for him. In any case, Mary seems not to listen when he objects. She simply tells the servants to do whatever it is that Jesus tells them to do. And he asked them to bring the huge water jugs used for ritual purification. This is a, a Jewish household, a Jewish wedding feast. And so there in that house um, are these huge uh, stone jars. And he tells the servants to fill them to the top with water. And that's, that's a lot of work. That's about 150 to 180 gallons of extra work for these servants who are already burdened with extra work and extra guests, not to mention the 12 extra that tagged along with Jesus, who, let's be honest, may have been the reason they ran out of wine in the first place <laughs> at this wedding. And then, then something remarkable happens. Once they have done what Jesus tells them to do, the water in the jars is no longer water but wine. And when the head steward tastes it, this wine is far better than anything he's ever tasted before, and he calls over the groom, who was supposed to be responsible for this part, but had clearly hidden this menu malfunction, and says, what is going on? You have saved the best wine for the end when most people would have served it at the beginning. We're told that this is the first of the signs that Jesus did in the Gospel of John, and that because of it, the disciples believed in him. Jim and I had been in a lot of weddings by the time we got married. We were some of the last of our friends to wed, and so he had been an usher and a groomsman countless times. I had been a bridesmaid and then the officiating pastor at dozens of weddings. We had both been collecting ideas for years on our wedding bucket list. We knew what we wanted our wedding to be like. We had our lists, and so we just did it all. We opened with hymns. We sang worship choruses. We had multiple scripture readings. There was a full sermon, no little homily for us. We had narrowed the invitation list down to 500 of our closest friends. And then we served them all communion. It was ancient and future. It was Trinitarian and eschatological. It was glorious, and it was over an hour and a half long. <laughs> and the thing about these 500 guests that we invited was that we had to figure out a way to feed all of them. Now, the bride was a preacher, and the groom was a professor. And let's just say that the wedding of a preacher and a teacher does not equal a buffet of surf and turf. So we had to come up with a solution. And so here was our solution. We got married at 2 o'clock in the afternoon, halfway between lunch and dinner. And if you ever get an invitation to a wedding that's at 10 in the morning or 2 in the afternoon, it's code for we're not feeding you anything but cake. Now, we did have some nice hot hors d'oeuvres, but I won't bore you with that part. 
Um, but even if we had elected to feed 500 plus people, and if we had run out of food or drink, it would have been slightly embarrassing. We might have sent someone to Whataburger, that's a Texas thing, um, for a little extra food, but it would have been nothing, nothing compared to what was going on at this wedding where the wine ran out. This week-long celebration where wine was the main beverage, a breach of hospitality in this culture was shocking and shame-inducing and reputation-ending. And it turns out that the guests could even have sued the groom when they ran out of wine. So this situation was desperate. And I love for so many reasons that this is the first miracle that Jesus performs in the Gospel of John. Because here, here is someone who runs out, who is desperate, unable to help themselves. They don't got this. Someone asks Jesus for help, and suddenly the wine is overflowingly abundant and wonderful. And, and this first miracle is the template for every other miracle. In this first miracle is contained the seed of all the other miracles Jesus performs because in the Gospels, desperation precedes a miracle. Think about it. Someone is blind or lame or dead or someone's child is sick or dying or demon-possessed. Thousands of people are hungry and the disciples haven't thought to bring any food. Ten people are walking around with leprosy, outcasts from their families and their community. A woman is bent over. A man's hand is withered beyond recognition. A woman is bleeding. A child is dead. These are desperate people. Jesus is the miracle worker of those in despair. He is the savior of desperate people. After all, if you are not desperate, what do you need a miracle for anyway? Desperation is a gift from God. It's the gift that teaches us that we can't do this on our own, that every time we say to ourselves, don't worry, I've got this, we are fooling ourselves. We're wearing a mask of self-reliance and believing a lie of self-subsistence. And we are all, every one of us, in need of Jesus' power. But to tell you the truth, it's only the desperate that even ask for it. And they receive it. Boy, do they receive. Why? Why is it the humble that get lifted up? The poor in spirit that get blessed? The weak that are made strong? And the meek that inherit the earth? Because they have already run out. And they can't pretend anymore. Desperation is a gift that means we can't pretend anymore. And those of us who serve God in vocational ministry are sometimes the most guilty of pretending. We're taught that it's our strengths that will build the kingdom, that giving our best will grow the church, heal the people, prepare the way of the Lord. But friends, you are finite human beings. And that means that even when you serve your best, you are going to run out. And then what will you do? What will life and ministry look like in the times when you are empty and depleted, discouraged and defeated, when you are desperate? What will happen when your mask of self-reliance falls off and you realize you desperately need help? Running out is not failure. 
It's honesty. In fact, some of the most fruitful points in your ministry and life will be the places where you run out. This primary place where you are going to see Jesus' power is when you have nothing left of your own. And if you're not at rock bottom just yet, how can you get there faster? Let's ask that question. Really, there are only two ways to the bottom. You can fall at the foot of the cross or you can kneel there. So humility, confession, recognizing the emptiness of your own striving, those will take you there if you want to get there before you reach the bottom of your barrel, before your strength runs out. Desperation is a gift of honesty. They all stood there at that wedding and only Mary named it. They're out of wine, she said. And it was then that Jesus helped. We're going to have to lean in to this gift of desperation, to be honest about where we fall short, to tell ourselves and Jesus honestly where we are not enough so that he can come and fill our emptiness with his best. Even our best will run out, but his best will always be better. A few years ago, I sat in a doctor's office waiting for a hard truth. Sometimes doctors don't have all the answers, and so they give you the possibilities. They say, well, the truth could be this, or this, or this. Here's the best case scenario, but we have to tell you the worst case scenario, too. We have to scare you so that maybe it won't be that bad in the end. And I remember that this doctor had just laid out all these scenarios for me, and then he said something. He said, go home and come back the day after tomorrow, 48 hours of waiting. And we're going to run some more tests, he said. And in the meantime, he said, do me one favor. For God's sake, don't Google it. <laughs> so what did I do? I mean, 48 hours of waiting. Of course I did. I Googled it, and it, and it terrified me. And I tell you that because I'm going to tell you that when you're given a lovely gospel text to preach on, perhaps perhaps a miracle of Jesus, a beautiful story that you find a simple truth in and you can wrap it up in a bow or a metaphor. And even when you think it would make a really great tweet, hashtag, when you run out, run to Jesus. Just leave the sermon alone. And two days before you preach it, for God's sake, don't Google it. So there I was a couple of days ago, Googling what other people had said about this text. And there was one that just ruined the whole thing for me. It absolutely wrecked my entire simple, beautiful hashtag story of running out and running to Jesus. This person who shall remain unnamed, although you can probably Google it, with a reputable PhD from a reputable seminary who also taught at a lovely sister seminary of ours, was wrestling with this question of why Jesus performed his first miracle so privately and with something so seemingly trivial as wine. I mean, why not feed the 5,000 first? Why not do a healing, wow them with an exorcism? This is a private party. No one really gets what Jesus has done except his own inner circle. And women and slaves are not considered competent witnesses anyway, right? So this is the conclusion he came to, what he says about Jesus choosing the setting of a party and the medium of wine for his miracle. He says, 
Some people think, I quote, some people think that a good Christian must not be too lighthearted and that a good Christian must be very serious. How very different the real Jesus is. He comes to a wedding and he decides to perform his first miracle to, to help people enjoy themselves and have fun. And this tells me that Jesus' concern is to help individuals and make them happy. Does that make you mad? I'm not sure whether it was the word individuals or happy that got me more upset. This is the frat party Jesus. No wonder the disciples. <laughs> there you go. You'd follow him too. This is the self-help Jesus, the genie in the bottle Jesus, the Jesus who is all about raising my own happiness quotient and fulfilling my own requests, the Jesus who ceases to be Lord when everything goes wrong and the world falls apart. Job cannot worship this Jesus. Neither can Naomi, nor Stephen, nor Jesus himself hanging on a cross. I googled it and I am sorry. Because that one phrase about individuals and happiness made me want to throw out this whole sermon just to avoid any chance of sounding like internet guy. But instead, I went back and looked at the text again, at this conversation at a wedding. To recap, it's a conversation between a mother and a son, and it opens with these words, Mary to Jesus, Jesus, they have run out of wine. Google can help you with this one, too, or Bible Gateway, more exactly, because it will take you to the places in Isaiah where the absence of wine or the abundance of wine will point out Israel's thirst for a Messiah or the arrival of the Messiah anywhere that there is abundant and flowing wine. From Isaiah 24-7, the new wine dries up and the vine withers. All the merrymakers groan. Sound like the wedding? And then in Isaiah 25, about the Messiah, on this mountain, the Lord Almighty will prepare a feast of rich foods for all peoples, a banquet of aged wine, the best of meats and the finest of wines. I should stop, but I can't help myself. On this mountain, he will destroy the shroud that enfolds all peoples, the sheet that covers all nations. He will swallow up death forever. The sovereign Lord will wipe away the tears from all faces. He will remove his people's disgrace from all the earth. The Lord has spoken. So Mary says, referencing Isaiah, they are out of wine. Not just the wedding has run dry. Israel has run dry. The world has run dry. And they are thirsty for Messiah. This nice Jewish wedding is out of wine, Jesus. But so is the world. Your people need Messiah. Woman, Jesus says, woman, my hour has not yet come. Now stop for just a minute. Did you really think Jesus would sass his mother at a wedding? Or that he would break a commandment at all? That word, woman, Jesus never uses it with what I would call with my children, tone. Don't you take that tone with me. He uses it with gentleness. Woman, he says in the garden. Woman, why are you weeping? And the only other place in John 
where he refers to his, woman, his mother as woman is from the cross. Woman, behold your son. There's no tone there, just compassion. And, and my hour has not yet come. Is that his way of saying, mother, mom, get off my back. I'm not ready yet. Or is the hour in John where it only refers to those final moments on the cross? John 17, 1, after Jesus said this, he looked toward heaven and prayed, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son so that your son may glorify you. Is this a spat between a mother and a son? A nagging and a refusal, a rebuke and a reluctant giving in? Or is this a rehearsal of the prophecies of the arrival of a Messiah? And the premiere of that Messiah at a wedding, building a sturdy theological bridge from the wedding to the cross. On the third day, John says, on the third day, they were at a wedding and the wine ran out. What else happens on the third day? On the third day, they're at a wedding, and Jesus steps into the role as groom and takes over providing wine for the guests. If Jesus is groom, there's only one missing character in this wedding story. Who is it? Where is the bride? How dare John tell a wedding story and never mention the bride? Has he not seen Say Yes to the Dress? Or Bridezilla's isn't the wedding about the bride. Where is she in all of this anyway? John is building this bridge from a wedding to the cross to another wedding where we, the church, will show up and walk down the aisle, tattered and muddy. The bride who has run out of gifts and strengths, the bride who has used up her best, where all we have to offer our groom is desperation, where we approach him ragged and dirty and fall at his feet to admit that we are empty and we have nothing to offer. We tried our best, Jesus, and we ran out. And in grace upon grace, as John would say, Jesus the groom calls for the ritual purification jars and says, fill them up to the top. We're going to need a lot of water for her. Desperation is a gift. It doesn't matter if our dreams of desperation are small. The answer is always big. They asked for a little refill, and they got a Messiah. They wanted to save face with their friends, and they got a new creation. Jesus pays attention to our desperation and what we want, but ultimately he gives us what the world needs. Desperation is a gift, even when we cry out for the smallest things. At some point in your seminary life, you will cry out in desperation, sweet Jesus, I just need a B minus to pass. Hebrew, give me a B minus on this test. You will cry out to him. You will sing out to him in desperation, Lord, you've got a B minus in your hands. Please, Lord. A B minus in your hands, please. You are going to pray your way to that B minus in desperation. You're going to give it your best, and you're going to run out, and that B minus is going to make you run to him. You're going to find yourself in his hands, and next to your B minus, you will find the refugees and the persecuted and the mother who's just miscarried and the couple who's just separated, the world. Longing for Messiah. 
I've got this, Jesus says. I've got you and your desperation, but I've got so much more than the tiny refill that you've offered me because there, along with your desperate soul, he's got the whole world in his hands. This is so much better than the frat party Jesus who cares about individuals and wants them to be happy. We asked him for just enough wine to meet our concerns, just enough wine so that we didn't embarrass ourselves in front of our friends, just enough wine to make us happy individuals. And instead, he made more than we could drink at a whole wedding. He made enough for the whole village, enough for the whole world. In premarital counseling with starry-eyed engaged couples, I tell most brides and grooms that something goes wrong at every wedding. And when it happens, you should just say to yourself, oh good, there it is, and move on. <laughs> I tell them this because they have this picture in their minds, and I'm afraid when the thing goes wrong that they will think it has ruined the wedding. When that one thing goes wrong, I tell them, don't say to yourself, this has ruined our perfect wedding. Tell yourself, this is the story we will talk about for years to come. Someone faints, or someone steps on the bride's veil and she falls backwards down the stairs. <laughs> or a bridesmaid goes into labor, or the ring bearer yells out that he has to go pee-pee, or worse yet, he just does. There's something at every wedding. At our wedding, the unity candle wouldn't light. <laughs> Does that sound like bad news? <laughs> it was my fault, really. I mean, I had some overblown theological idea that we would use the Christ candle from our church's Advent wreath. You know, that tall, white candle in the middle of the Advent wreath, the one our church had been using for years. I, I had something in mind about the significance of incarnation and trinity and the unity of husband and wife and blah, blah, blah. Um, let's just say sometimes it complicates things when the bride is a pastor. Anyway, our church had been using this unity candle for so many years that the wick was burned way down inside of it. And the candle was so tall and we were so short that we just stood there on our tiptoes with our candles dripping hot wax down onto the wick that we were trying to light, which seemed like a bad omen at the time. And the song that we were supposed to be doing, the stirring played out, and the pastor came over and there was this awkward silence, something that professional worship planners hate. And our pastor had to take the candle down and smooth out the wick and hold it sideways for us to light it. And he, he turned to the congregation and he said very seriously, it is lit. <laughs> and everyone laughed. And I looked over and Jim laughed. And he smiled at me and he, he looked more like himself than he had since the wedding started. And I smiled back. And that imperfection, that moment of weakness, of running out, was really the moment where we came together. The moment um, of failure in that wedding is the moment that I will always treasure and remember. Stop telling yourself that you've got this. You don't. 
Don't try to hide your places of weakness, of dryness, running out. Don't try to run from those things. Lean into them. That's where you're going to meet Jesus. Your best is always going to run out, and he will always have a best that is better. Your desperation will lead you to ask for just a tiny refill, but he will bypass the bottles you have emptied and say instead, bring me the jars, all of them. And then he'll fill them up with 150 gallons of grace. John says, we beheld his glory, the glorious presence of the Son of God from his fullness, from his fullness, we all have received grace upon grace upon grace. Amen. I'm going to pray for us, and then I'd like to invite you to stay in your seats, and our, our musicians are going to come and lead us in a time of reflection. Um, you can sing with them or not. You have received a small piece of paper, very small, and this is time for you to write a word or response here. Notice how small it is. This is not an essay. A word, a phrase that symbolizes something. What is it you have been doing in your own strength? Where can you feel yourself on your way to running out? Where is the gift of desperation showing up in your life? Or maybe where have you asked for pint-sized help where God wants to give you gallons of grace? This is the space for that. And then sing along, and then we will um, close standing and singing together. But first, let's pray. Lord, we praise you for the gift of desperation. Where we have fallen at your feet, pick us up. Where we have run out, fill us up. And Lord, where we're still struggling to pretend, help us to kneel and humble ourselves, and confess. Lord, we admit that we thought it was our strengths where you would meet us. But Jesus, today, thank you for the gift of weakness. There are people in this room that are empty and out and need you. We want to run to you, God. So come and meet with us this morning in this time. Help us to pray that prayer where we lay it at your feet once again. Amen.